So I want to invite you to turn to the book of Mark, chapter 27. So we're continuing our kind of journey through the lectionary. I am, by the way, going to start doing a series in November. I, I've, uh, I've been working through some ideas on some new series ideas, and so we're, we are going to start a new series in November. So we'll continue with the lectionary in um, September and October, and then in November we'll start a new series. And I'll, I'll talk more about that as that gets closer. So just in case you're like curious about like what we're going to be talking about, um, I'm, I'm thinking about that a lot too. So anyway, so we're looking at the book of Mark, chapter 8, uh, and we'll just get right into it. This is a story that is super confusing and can be a little bit off-putting. I talked about this. I, I did a sermon on this uh, a few years ago, so I don't know how many of us are um, were, were here for that. But it was one of those, at, like, the more I looked at this passage, the more I looked at this story, the more I thought, like, this is really confusing, and I don't know if I like it. And then the more I looked at it, the more I realized, like, oh, this is brilliant. And I love it when that happens. So we're gonna we're gonna revisit this story that we looked at like several. I couldn't even tell, like probably four or five years ago, um, but it turned out to be today's lectionary passage. So that's what we're gonna do. So um, if if you've ever wondered if Jesus ever succumbed to like name calling or <laughs> or anything like that, this is one of those stories where you think like I don't know if I like that Jesus just said that. So um, we're we're just gonna jump right in and take a look at it and see what we get out of it. So in Mark chapter eight verse twenty seven. It says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On, on the way, he asked, who do people say that I am? So, by the way, there, there's a lot going on just in this one question. One is, like, they're near Caesarea Philippi, which is a Roman city. It's named for Caesar. And so already there's some tension just in naming the location. There's some tension here because we're acknowledging just by, just in, just in the course of noting where we are geographically, we are noting that Caesar has power. That there is all kinds of power that Caesar has, has seized and controlled. And so now we are in Caesar's world. And so now here, it's in this place that Jesus says, by the way, just out of curiosity, who is it the people say that I am? And then in verse 28, it says, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what, do you, what about you? He asked, what do you say? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. So, and then Jesus warned them not to tell anybody, which is a couple of things. Uh, first of all, why does Jesus tell them not to tell anybody? And two, what does Peter mean when he says you are the Messiah? So let's start with that one. So there's this word that Peter uses. If I can find my... I realize... Um, okay, I don't know if y'all will be able to see all this. So Peter uses this word, Messiah. When, when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Peter says, you are the Messiah. Now, this has deep cultural roots to it. There is this assumption in ancient Hebrew culture that when the people are being oppressed, there would rise up a leader to take them out of their oppression. And that leader would be referred to as the Messiah. So there, was all, there were all sorts of kind of expectations and assumptions about one day, are, we will be liberated because a Messiah will come and liberate us. And, and in this context, it's, well, Rome are, is the one that, that's oppressing us. So whenever the Messiah shows up, the Messiah will come and liberate us from Rome, which is why it's so interesting that they're near Caesarea Philippi. So they're near Caesarea Philippi. G Jesus says, who do people say that I am? They have all kinds of answers. And Jesus says, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, which is a way of saying, we believe, or Peter saying, I believe that you, Jesus, are the one who will ultimately liberate us from Rome. And up to this point, there have been se several like messiah like attempts 
by other people who, and it hasn't gone well. Like, and when I, when I say attempts, I mean like people who have shown up and tried to like rise up and uh, like do an uprising against Rome, never ever worked. And so um, you have you have this assumption that there is going to be this Messiah that will show up and ultimately liberate the people from Rome. So Jesus says, "Who do people say that I am?" And Peter says, "You're the one who will come and liberate us from Rome." So Peter's feeling pretty charged up about who Jesus is right now. So when Peter said, and we see several times that Peter does have sort of this militaristic understanding or assumption about what the Messiah is supposed to be. So Peter answers Jesus's question with, you're the revolutionary. You're the one who's going to come and lead us into a new world in which Rome isn't in control. Which maybe that's why Jesus tells them not to tell anybody. Because maybe Jesus is like, let's not start that kind of revolution just quite yet. So, again, Peter's feeling pretty charged up. He answers that Jesus is the Messiah. And then in verse 31, it says, He, Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man, must, meaning referring to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed after three days and rise again. Which goes directly in conflict with the whole notion of Messiah. So it lists off, it says, the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law. So who are, the, who are these groups of people? Why, did, why does it specifically list these groups of people? Well, these are the most powerful people within Jewish society, under the controlling arm of the Roman Empire, of course. So you've got Rome, who controls everything, but then Rome lets, it lets certain local individuals and groups have a certain amount of power to kind of create the illusion that there is some, some amount of like localized power structure. So within the localized power structure, you have the elders, you have the chief priests, and you have the teachers of the law. So you have this really like powerful group of people within the, the conquered masses. And, and apparently these are the groups of people who are going to turn on Jesus. And, and Jesus says, ultimately, I'm going to be killed at the hands of Rome and the leaders and the teachers of the law. By the way, there's this interesting grammatical detail. All of the verbs that Jesus uses about himself in this passage are passive. The implication here seems to be that the powerful people are going to do things to him and that he will have no agency in the matter. It's, it's that Jesus will like voluntarily abdicate any sort of control or agency that he has on his own behalf. So, we, so Jesus is basically saying there are going to be people who will use their power to harm and ultimately to kill me. And this is jarring. If you consider what Jesus has just said or what Peter has just said about Jesus being the Messiah, and Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Because the Messiah, in Jewish consciousness, is a figure of strength. And he's, uh, the Messiah is meant to be a conqueror. To, and so to follow the statement about being the Messiah with language about being powerless and suffering and being killed by powerful people would have been super confusing if you're one of Jesus' followers. This would not have fit into anybody's current paradigm. Everybody's current paradigm is, no, Messiah, Messiah is, that's, that's who liberates us. That's, that's the conquering hero. That's, this, this is the person that we've been waiting for. And then the very next thing that Jesus says is, yeah, I'm going to be tortured and killed at the hands of more powerful people, of, of the powerful people in our midst. Th this, this makes no sense to the people who believe Jesus is the Messiah. So Peter has a very natural reaction to this in verse 32. And it says, um, I'm sorry. Yeah, it says he spoke plainly. Jesus spoke plainly about this. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. So Peter doesn't like what Jesus has to say. So T Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, listen, you gotta stop talking like this. This is not gonna work. 
So Peter's problem isn't personal. Like I, I was always sort of, um, my assumption about this story was always that Peter like had an emotional attachment to Jesus. And like he's Jesus's buddy and doesn't want, want to see Jesus harmed. So he pulls Jesus aside and says like, why are you talking like this? Don't, don't, don't talk like this. Uh, but the thing is, Jesus, Peter's problem with Jesus here in this particular notion or in this particular situation isn't personal. Peter's problem with Jesus is theological. Peter has a very specific idea about what the Messiah's role in the world is supposed to be. Like I said, the Messiah, for Peter, is a local hero. He's a conqueror. He's a strong man. So how exactly, if you're Peter, how exactly is Jesus supposed to restore glory to the nation and liberate the people from their oppressors if Jesus is dead? So Peter has a belief that is so deeply embedded in his brain that not even God in the flesh can dissuade him from it. So not even Jesus himself can get Peter, can, can like unwedge Peter from his assumptions about who God is and what God is supposed to be like. Because sometimes we have assumptions about what God is like. And sometimes those assumptions are so difficult to dislodge that not even Jesus himself can dislodge them. So Jesus has a response of his own. So Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, listen, you gotta stop talking like that. He rebukes him. So in verse 33, it says, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And then Jesus says this thing that I would not say to anybody, which is, get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Okay, it feels like that escalated very quickly. Because it seems like Peter has a very natural reaction to, Jesus says, like, I'm going to be killed. And Peter says, stop talking like that. And Jesus calls him Satan. Notice and I, I mentioned this several, um, like back after Easter, when we looked at the, the story of doubting Thomas. Thomas doubts one time and is totally like vindicated and is forevermore referred to as doubting Thomas. Jesus calls Peter Satan. No one has ever referred to Peter as Satanic Peter. But this is, so, so Jesus has like this very big reaction to Peter's like what, I, what, what I, I think you could argue is a pretty natural objection to what Jesus has just said about him being killed. So let's explore a couple of things here. First of all, this entire section and really the entire book of Mark is showing that Jesus is on a very specific path. If you, if you look through the whole book of Mark, Mark is on a pretty like steady clip. Mark, Mark is in, I mean, it, it, I, I won't go so far as to say he's in a hurry to get to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, but he's not like slowing down for anything. Mark is headed somewhere. The entire book of Mark is all about getting Jesus to the destination of the cross and the empty tomb. So the path that Jesus is on is, so, so Mark is all about Jesus is on a path. That's been the whole thing. So the path that Jesus, Jesus is on is a counteraction against any system of power that insists that violence and conquest are the best ways to bring peace into the world. A lot of what Jesus is trying to do is, a, is, is about telling a counter-narrative about, okay, there is this way of being. And by the way, this is the way of Rome. The way of Rome is, if you are my enemy, I will destroy you. And my destroying my enemies will then ultimately bring about peace. Because if nobody's left alive who disagrees with you, that's a very peaceful situation. So that's how Rome brings about peace. So the assumption is that the Messiah will just be a better, like more right version of Rome. We'll just get rid of all of their enemies in the same way that Rome gets rid of all of their enemies. And 
Jesus seems to be telling a counter-narrative that goes in the other direction of that. And so Jesus is moving through the world with a spirit of grace and peace and love. And he is embodying all the ways that he intends to bring resurrection and restoration and renewal into the world. Jesus is telling a different kind of story. So Jesus and Peter have two very different understandings of Jesus's path. So the assumption here, the entire book of Mark, I want to make sure that this is on the screen, is, that's a path, is that Jesus is on a path. And the path is leading somewhere. And the whole idea here is Jesus is saying, I am on this path. And my path doesn't look like the Roman kind of path. My path is not about conquest and murder and, des and destruction of, of everybody that I don't like. My path is about grace and healing and renewal. My path is a different kind of path. So Peter, though, doesn't see Jesus's path in this way. Peter has a different assumption of Jesus's path. B Peter disagrees with Jesus about what Jesus's path should be. So Peter thinks Jesus's path is about force and about conquest. But Jesus understands that his path is actually about love and self-sacrifice. And this scene is where those two expectations finally collide. They clash. And Peter and Jesus have a real, like, kind of, kind of a, I almost said a come to Jesus moment, <laughs> uh, about what Jesus' path is supposed to be. So, which raises the question, okay, that all makes sense, but why does Peter, or why does Jesus call Peter Satan? Couldn't Jesus have said something like, Listen, you don't understand. Why does Peter, or why does Jesus go so far out of his way to like call names and like call him uh, like a, what, what seems to be a very like loaded name to call somebody? So let's talk about this word. Let's talk, let's talk about the word Satan for a moment, if we could. So the word Satan is a Hebrew word. It's actually hasatan. And it has a couple of different uh, types of translations. One mode of translation for this is the, you could, it could be translated as the accuser or the adversary. Um, in fact, by the way, if you're interested in this word and just like all kind of like the language and the history behind it, uh, Dr. Richard Beck, friend of Collective Church, Dr. Richard Beck has written an incredible book called Reviving Old Scratch. And so if you're interested in, in just like all the different like nuances surrounding this word and this idea, go find that book. It's, 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 it's fantastic. Everything that Richard Beck has ever written is great. So that's a, that's, that's a free commercial for everything that Richard Beck has ever written. So um, anyway, so Hasatan is often translated as accuser or um, adversary. But another way you could translate the word Hasatan is the word, one, the one who obstructs. So in other words, if you are on a path and there is something obstructing your path, if there's something in the middle of your path that's blocking, blocking your way, that object is literally Satan. That, that object is Hasatan. You're on a path and something gets in the way of your path. Something is obstructing the way of, like what, whatever path you're on, if something is obstructing it, that thing is, is acting in that moment as ha-satan. So, uh, for example, if you've ever uh, lived in Keller and you've ever had to cross 377 and you've gotten to that light where you're about to cross 377 and the arms of the train go down and you realize like, I'm going to be sitting here for 20 minutes because this train is infinite and it just will not stop. If you've ever, if you've ever been in a hurry to get on one, from one side of 377 to the other and that train got in your way and you ended up being late, 
to pick up your daughter from dance class and then you got all the stink eyes when you finally got there because everybody thinks you were just running late because you weren't paying attention, but really it's because the train was Satan, then, you know, just in general, if that's ever happened to you, then you might have experienced the train as ha-satan. That train was a, a, an obstruction in your path. So it doesn't mean the train is evil, although you could argue... <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> um, no offense to anyone who works with trains or anything like that. I'm just saying, like, the, the train in that moment is, is ha-satan. It's obstructing the path. So when people talk about Satan, when people talk about ha-satan, we often sort of imagine a guy in red pajamas with pointy horns and a pitchfork. But that's not really how the word is being used here. When Jesus uses this word, he's not, he's not using... He's not using a name like he's, he's referring to like a historical or like a, a figure in that sense. He's, he's calling Peter, you were the, he's telling Peter, you were the one obstructing the path. So what's happening in Mark 8 um, is that Jesus articulates his God-given path. He's very clearly trying to get into a conversation about this is what my path is. Who do people say that I am? And then Jesus gets into, here's what the path is going to look like. It's going to look like self-sacrifice. It's going to look like lowering myself so that somebody else can live. And Peter says, no, I don't like that. And Jesus says, you're obstructing the path. He says, you're being an obstructor. You're in the way. And then and Jesus says then, he says, get behind me. Which, by the way, this, this notion of behind me, this is also very intentional because it sounds like sort of like Jesus is blowing Peter off and just saying like, get out of the way, get, get it. Yeah, get out of here. But behind me isn't about Jesus being dismissive. Jesus is reminding people, people, I'm sorry, Jesus is reminding Peter that Jesus is the rabbi and Peter is the disciple. Because the role of a disciple in, again, in Hebrew culture, the role of a disciple is literally to walk behind the rabbi and to follow in the rabbi's footsteps. A disciple is meant to learn the way of the rabbi by mimicking the ways of the rabbi. But you can't mimic the ways of the rabbi if you're walking out ahead of the rabbi. So the, the place of the disciple is to be behind the rabbi. So Jesus isn't just saying, get out of here, Peter. He's saying, this is the path that I'm on. And if you're going to follow me, you, it needs to be your path too. Jesus is saying, you're out in front obstructing the path. But what I want you to do is to be behind me following the path. So th that's why, by the way, that's why Jesus says the very next thing that he says. If you look at Mark um, chapter 8, verse 34. So in verse 34, it says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. This is right after he calls Peter Satan, by the way. Says, so he calls, he calls the crowd to him. He says, Whoever wants to be my disciple, my follower, must deny themselves and take up their cross and what? Follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? So Jesus has this whole like confrontation with Peter. He tells Peter to, be, to get behind me, and then he tells everybody else, by the way, if you want to follow this path, you have to be behind me too. You have to also follow in my footsteps. This whole section is Jesus trying to explain to his followers what kind of path he's on. So Jesus says, if you expected this path to be easy, it won't be. This isn't a path that thrives on grasping for more power. 
It's a path, this path is about giving away power. It's about loosening my grip on the things that I wanna control. It's about, lowering, it's about lowering yourself so that someone else might have a sense of life and grace. Jesus is trying to do something healing and redemptive in the world, but Peter wants him to do something else. Peter wants him to conquer their enemies. Peter wants to, Peter wants to fit Jesus inside of his own expectations of what he wants to see happen and what he wants God to be like. And Jesus' response here is, no, 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 you're missing the point. Not only are, by the way, not only are you missing the point, you're in the way. You're not helping. So Jesus has this thing to say to Peter about, listen, you can be behind me and following the way, or you can be out in front of me blocking the way and actually making it harder for other people to be a part of this path as well. So let's try and identify with Peter here just for a minute. Let's admit that sometimes we want God to hate all the same people that we hate. And we want God to hurt all the same people that we want to see punished. And maybe when we do that, Jesus is saying, no, that's, that's not what this is. You're, you're missing the point. And I, actually, not only are you missing the point, sometimes you're actually getting in the way. When, when we become the kinds of people who use Jesus-y types of language to bring harm to other people, then what we're doing is we're getting in the way. We're obstructing the path. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not the, that's, that's not the path that we're on. Get behind me. Follow in this path, and let's see where it takes us. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew 23, um, Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders of his day, and he has some really harsh words. I mean, we're, we're looking at some of the harsher things that Jesus has to say here, but in um, verse 13, uh, Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the doors on the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who enter or who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. In other words, you're trying so hard to bring people into your way of thinking. And all it's doing is making more people alienated and angry. And you're, and basically you're, you're converting people into this way of being. And you're just making the, like more fundamentalists. And you're making more people, you're making it harder for people to, to receive some amount of grace and peace and love. You're getting in the way. And then uh, if you jump down to verse 25, it says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean. Will, will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You, like the, you are like the whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So over and over and over again, Jesus continues to remind people, look, it's possible to use lots of religious sounding language, but also to be in the way and, and to be obstructing other people's path towards grace and peace and love. Jesus is saying, this is what we're doing in the world. We're trying to make the world more like the kingdom of God. We're trying to offer some amount of grace and peace and you're getting in the way. It, it is possible to use religious language to hurt people, to make people feel unloved or unworthy of love. It happens every single day. We, can, we see it every single day. And Jesus says, listen, I'm on a path. 
And it's a path of love and mercy and self-sacrifice. And Peter says, well, that's not what we want from you. But then Jesus says, well, then you're getting in the way. Because this is the path that I'm on. So Jesus isn't, the, 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 the phrase get behind me isn't a blow off. Get behind me is an invitation. It's an invitation to follow in this way of Jesus that is about grace and hope and peace and love. So may we be behind Jesus and may we follow in the footsteps of Jesus as he models this, this way of, of being in the world. May we see that Messiah isn't about blasting our enemies or being more right or more strong. It's about an understanding of grace and peace and love. May we model that, may we receive that, and may we find that that's the kind of path that we're on. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for inviting us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. May we find that we are more and more capable of offering grace and peace and love to one another. May we be open to the possibility that we have more to learn. May we find that when we want to see pain uh, inflicted upon those that we disagree with, may we hear your words as, as you say, that's not the kind of path that we're on. For those of us who have been wounded by other people's usage of uh, religious language or who, who have used your name to harm us, to harm others, may we heal from those wounds and may we re remember that the invitation here is to be behind you, to walk in your footsteps. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you all so, so much for...